morning. Good to see you all. Good to sing the praises of God with you. It's encouragement to, yeah, just to, do you ever just pause and listen to everybody else sing? It's encouraging. It's an encouragement. If you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things we hope about our singing is that it seems both very weird and compelling to you. You know, like, um, yeah, there's something about, like, what, what kind of God would compel people to, you know, who can't sing at all. If you can sing really nice and pretty, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 okay. But if you're like the rest of us who can't sing and you're like singing at the top of your lungs, there must be someone worth singing about to get you to do that, right? So I hope, it, it, hope there's something about that that causes you to pause and go, huh, I should maybe ask some questions about who they're singing to, so. Um, well, it's good to see you all. We're continuing our journey through uh, the Gospel of Mark, not the whole Gospel, but we've been looking at the works of Jesus throughout. Uh, and we're gonna look at Mark chapter nine today, so you can turn there if you've got a Bible with you. Now, if, when you go on walks, and you know, if you go hiking or go on walks, do you ever pause, I'm just curious, to look at the sort of the finer points of the beauty around you? Do you ever kind of zoom in and, and go, I'm looking at like, you know, a flower or a, you know, whatever it may be, yeah? Do y'all do that? Okay, awesome. So I wanna show you some pictures of some pretty things, some beautiful things today. So, so how many of you are partial to yellow flowers? Like when you really like think about the beauty of a flower, how many yellow flowers? Okay, there's a few of you. How many of you are red flowers would be your thing? Purple flowers? Those are good. I do like a good purple flower. I do not like purple as a school color. I wish Northern would change it. <laughs> We're Northern people. My, we live in Northern. My kids go to Northern. Uh, I just don't like purple. That's a cool color. Nothing says like we're gonna lose, like getting off the bus in purple. <laughs> I feel like it just, you know, who knows? <laughs> All the northern people start streaming for the doors. All the Mechanicsburg people are like, yeah. I don't know the maroon's much better, to be honest. Now imagine, I gotta recover now. Let's imagine, imagine you're on a walk and you're just, you know, you're, um, you know, you're taking in the beauty, you see this flower and you're taking it in and it's really pretty, isn't it? When you get up close and you really see something in a zoomed in kind of a way, you see the beauty of it. But I want you to imagine now that, that perhaps if you weren't aware of your surroundings, you might be missing something else. So what if you were on a hike and this is what you're looking at, but you missed that? What if that's where you were looking at that flower? Now, the zoomed in picture is really beautiful, but when you zoom out, you also then see something of the beauty that is around it. Would you agree? Yeah. So, I mean, if you were looking at that flower in that context, you need to see the bigger picture in order to really understand the beauty. Or what about this? This is beautiful, too, when you zoom in on it and look at it. Uh, there's something really gorgeous about a, about a snowflake. I imagine that's magnified. I don't think that's probably with the naked eye there. I think that's probably a, a zoomed-in version of, like, really... And it's amazing that God makes such beautiful things. You just float down softly from the sky and just the crystallized look of that. But what if you were looking at that now and you, in the context you were looking, you zoomed out and this is what you saw. I think that's the Canadian Rockies. I'm not sure, but I think it is, right? And just the billions of those snowflakes now and you get the bigger picture. There's something about sort of zooming out and seeing the bigger picture of what you're looking at that shows you another level of the beauty of that thing. Is that right? Yeah. Seeing the fuller context, the fuller story, if you will. 
And as we come to our story today, that's exactly what God is doing for us about Jesus. We've been looking at these works of Jesus, and Mark has said throughout his gospel that his goal is to show us that he is God's very son. Like, that's, that's his aim. He's pretty simple about it, pretty straightforward about it. So he shows us all these miracles that he did and in order to convince us, in order to help us see that he is God's son. And now as we come, I'm cheating a little bit because we've been looking at these works of Jesus. We're not actually looking at a work of Jesus today. We're gonna look at a work of God that he does in Jesus today, and that's this story of the transfiguration. If you've read your Bible before, you'll be familiar with it. If you haven't, I'll read the story for you and you can see it. But what God is doing is essentially what we just look at. He has been giving us a very beautiful picture of a zoomed in on Jesus kind of a look, and everything we've seen has been beautiful, gorgeous. But he's now backing up and pulling back the veil and showing us something even fuller about Jesus. He wants you to see something even fuller. And through this story, I want you to ask this question because you have to think this way. If you're reading through the scriptures, when you get to the story, you should think, God, why did you put this here? Like, for what reason did you do this? It's a pretty private thing. Only three disciples see it. He tells them to keep it quiet, at least for a while. And it's kind of one of those things where God could have accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish through the life of Jesus without this moment, and yet he gives this moment to the disciples, and then to us through them because he wants to do something here. And I would argue that what he wants to do is he wants to help you see the fuller picture of Jesus. And I think then draw one of three or, or all three responses from you. He wants you to then believe in him. So if you don't believe in Jesus, this is an invitation directly from God. It's the testimony of God himself, not of me, a man, not of anyone else here in this room. It's the testimony of God himself that Jesus is his divine son that Jesus is God. That's what he's declaring in what he's going to do in this moment because he wants you to see that and he wants you to believe. And then having believed, he wants you to worship him. He wants you to give your unadulterated worship, your absolute resounding worship, the fullness of your life. He wants you to be captured by Jesus and respond in praise to him. And then he wants you to obey him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to go where he leads. He wants you to listen to him and be led by him. So that's his purpose here as we look at the, the Gospel of Mark chapter nine, this moment where Jesus is transformed before the eyes of three of his disciples. He's helping us to see the fullest picture of the glory of Jesus, the divine son, so that we would believe and worship and follow. Fair enough? All right, great. So we're gonna approach the text by just asking this simple question. If we imagine that we're God and someone were asking, who is Jesus, that you're gonna answer that question now with what you do here in this moment. So God is answering the question for us, who is Jesus? And we're gonna see three things about Jesus from this passage that will help us understand the fuller picture of his beauty, the fuller picture of his majesty. So look with me at Mark chapter nine, starting in verse two, and let's, let's read it together. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured just means transformed or changed. It's the same word that shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when we're told that we, having had the veil removed between us and God through Jesus, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Now, there's a huge application there that we're gonna get to when we think about the, the same thing that he says happened to Jesus now on this mountain is the same thing that happens to you and I through Jesus. 
that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's the same word in Romans chapter 12, verse two, when Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And so he says, basically, renew your mind and thinking on and understanding the truth of God through Jesus. Be changed, be transfigured, if you will. So that's what he's saying here. Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him as it is written of him. All right, so that's our story, the story of the transfiguration. Like I said, we're gonna answer that question, who is Jesus? So here's the first answer to that question that is offered to us by this story and by God's work of transfiguring Jesus. Here's the first answer. Jesus is the one who establishes God's kingdom, but through his death, through his suffering. Now, let me show you where we see that in the text. There, there's a book in here that's happening in the passage. In chapter eight, verse 31, so before what we read, Jesus has predicted his death. He has said to the disciples, the son of man, me, is gonna suffer and die. And the disciples throughout Mark, this is one of the great gifts that were given in the Gospel of Mark, is that they continue to not understand what Jesus says. How many of you feel like you have a hard time sometimes understanding what God is trying to get you to do? Yeah, we mess up all the time, and so it's a great gift that the disciples mess up a lot, and by the way, just a little tidbit, if you're kind of thinking, well, is the word of God trustworthy? Just one indicator, one helpful thing for me when I was trying to explore that question was, you know, if I were the disciples and I was the one writing these stories down, which is what's happening here, Mark is writing Peter's report uh, for us of Jesus' life, I probably would not include all the sections where I look like an idiot. I would probably cut those out. I'd be like, you know what, I, I'm gonna go ahead. I don't know that the, the disciples were so wily and so um, sharp that what they thought was, no, no, this will be even more proof that we're like not lying or it'll be another way that we can deceive people by making them think that we're really, no, none of that's happening. They are just a group of guys who are reporting what actually happened. And a lot of times they look real dumb, right? Peter doesn't look real sharp here, right? I don't know what to say, so I'm gonna babble some stuff. You don't say those things unless you're just telling what actually happened, Right, so yeah, that's just a little aside. But So the disciples kind of fail again and again. They don't understand in chapter eight, verse 31, when Jesus says, I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die. That's how the kingdom is gonna come. That's how I'm gonna, and by the kingdom, we just mean God accomplishing his purposes in the world, right? He wants to redeem people for himself. He wants to save them from their sin, make a people for himself, for his own glory. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to know you. And he's accomplished that through Jesus. And so he's saying, 
That's gonna happen through suffering. It's gonna happen through death. Now, follow what happens next then is he goes, you can imagine if you're Jesus, you just told them this, they're not quite getting it. You know the cross is coming. And if you are a disciple who's spent your, giving your life to him and you say, I'm following you and I'm believing in you and then the cross comes, your hopes are dashed. They are shattered. You watch the one you believe in die a criminal's death, very ignominious, suffering upon suffering, and you have to be crushed by that. So this moment is a gift for that moment, for Peter and James and Johnny saying, don't tell anybody about this right now because I don't want you to have, we're not gonna speed up the timeline here of my work, okay? I know my timeline, keep this to yourself. But you're gonna report it afterwards because when I suffer, you're gonna need to remember my glory. You're gonna need to remember what I looked like when I was transfigured in front of you because the thing I want you to see, Peter and James and John and the rest of my disciples and all the followers down through the ages is that my suffering is not in contradiction to my glory. My glory and my suffering go hand in hand. I will accomplish the glory of God through my suffering. They're not in opposition to one another. And it's very easy to think that way. It would be very easy if you were a disciple to just get crushed. And so this transfiguration moment, don't you imagine Peter went, but wait, no, we saw him in his eternal glory. We saw God pull back the veil. There's no way God would have done that if Jesus were just any common teacher who then got crucified for the things that he said. He wouldn't do that. Now, the, the other side of that, though, is that he's helping them understand also that the purposes of God are not always, in, in this moment, right, here's this transfigured Jesus, and they're gonna think that God is about to do something that is different than what he's actually going to do, which is why, come to the other bookend, now go to verses 11, 12, and 13 at the end of the text, at the end of the story, because that's kind of the most confusing part. We can kind of get the, whoa, this amazing thing happens, and then the disciples initiate a conversation, and you might not fully kind of grasp what, why are they asking this? So here's what happens. In verse 11, the disciples, and they asked him, uh, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Okay, so what they've just done, who did they just see talking with Jesus? Elijah, who if you're not familiar, he's an Old Testament prophet, right? Considered the greatest Old Testament prophet. And Moses, they were actually nicknamed the deathless ones because Elijah was taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. Moses kind of wandered off into the wilderness and died and, and no one's sure where he went. And so because they never had his body, Jews called these two prophets and leaders the, the deathless ones, the ones who didn't die, right? And so they are, they've just seen him talking with Elijah, talking with Moses, and here's what the disciples know. Just track with me for a second, because we gotta do a little Old Testament background, okay? In Malachi, at the very end of the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that says when the Messiah comes, when, this, when God sends his Messiah, his Savior, Elijah's gonna come first. And, and they didn't know exactly, I mean, scholars of that day would debate, okay, does this mean that literally Elijah's gonna come down out of heaven, the, the Elijah from before, or is it gonna be someone with a, a ministry like Elijah's, right? Is it gonna be a type of Elijah? And there would have been back and forth about that. But essentially, they know that there's gonna be an Elijah-like figure who's going to come, or maybe Elijah himself, before the Messiah begins to establish the kingdom of God. Well, what have they just seen on the mountain? They've just seen who talking with Jesus? Elijah. So in their minds now, and this is very normal, we're gonna see this throughout the Gospels, there's this more nationalistic view of what it is the Messiah is going to do, that he's gonna take up arms 
form an army and conquer Rome and drive them out and reestablish the nation of Israel in their land and expand their borders and do all these physical, earthly things to establish the kingdom of God. That's what they're thinking. And so they've just seen Elijah. So the disciples are asking this question because they're thinking, well, we've heard Elijah comes first. What are you about to do? Now remember, Jesus actually does say in verse 13, he says, yeah, Elijah does come first. He said that in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, beginning of verse 12. And then he's gonna say, I'm gonna tell you Elijah did come, but not in the way that you think, because he's talking about John the Baptist. And in other places in the Gospels, he clarifies, says, yeah, John the Baptist is the Elijah. He's the one who came before me to prepare the way. But he didn't establish any kind of powerful earthly ministry in the way that you're thinking. He suffered, just like actually Elijah suffered. Again, if you read the story of Elijah, it's full of suffering. It's full of difficulty. It's full of trial. It's not full of a lot of victory, right? There's moments, but there's a lot of difficulty. And he's saying, yeah, Elijah did come first, but look at the middle. Look at verse 12 and what he says there. He totally takes a right turn and redirects their attention because they ask, hey, the scribes say that first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What's he doing? He's pointing them away from this triumphalistic understanding of the establishment of the kingdom that he's gonna just march into Jerusalem and overthrow human armies. And he's saying, no, no, the kingdom will come through my death. It will come through my suffering. So he's both giving them something to prevent them from being so discouraged they imagine the kingdom isn't coming when they encounter his suffering, his cross. But he's also giving them something to help them see that it's not what they think, that, that you can't just go into this understanding of the kingdom that's not truly what he's going to do. Because if he doesn't die, rise again, he won't overcome sin and death. He could establish an earthly kingdom for a season, but he has something much, much bigger in mind, yes? That's why you and I are sitting here today. If Jesus just established an earthly kingdom by overthrowing Rome in that season and been a, you know earthly Messiah in that way, you and I wouldn't be here because he wouldn't be the means by which we would overcome sin and death and be adopted into the family of God and be reconciled to God the Father. He had a bigger mission in mind. So here's the, let me just give two points of application, okay? So this is what he, this is the bookends of this story. It's very much the point of what he's doing here in being transfigured. God is saying, who is Jesus? He's the one who establishes my kingdom. I'm gonna do all my work through him. But it's gonna be through his death. It's gonna be through suffering. So two points of application for us. Number one, means that as believers, we are neither overly triumphalistic nor are we sort of overly morose, or nor do we um, celebrate or delight in suffering. We both see that God has a purpose in it, and there's value in it and meaning in it. So we're not this triumphalistic, yeah, we're all about just establishing the kingdom in an earthly way. We understand that victory, we don't just go, I became a Christian, now everything's great all the time. But nor do we, nor do we, then go, well, suffering, then it's all suffering all the time, that's, that's what, that's, I'm actually like pursuing suffering, and that's all that matters, that's how, we live in a balanced theology of that suffering and understand neither triumphalism, right, nor pessimism, neither one of those things, and so we, we've gotta live in the middle of that, in the tension of it, because sometimes God will establish his kingdom through the followers of Jesus, through their trials, through their difficulties, would we agree with that? And other times he will establish his kingdom and bring his work by bringing a triumph, bringing a victory. The resurrection is real and has really transpired. 
and we really experience victory over the things we sang about today. We really experience God's power at work, all right? So then the second application is this, just very simply, is that, do you remember, if you, if you weren't with us, then you, I'll, I'll allude back to this. In Mark chapter five, do you remember when we talked about the story where Jesus heals the woman who's been bleeding for years and years, yes? And do you remember when we talked about then in that same story, he heals Jairus' daughter who is at the verge of death. In fact, actually she dies and he raises her from the dead. Do you guys remember that? And one of the things we were drawing from that is that Jesus is revealing the heart of God is full of compassion towards suffering. I mean, he, he deeply feels compassion so that when we suffer, when we're in trials, we're not alone. He's right there next to us and he, he has compassion. We learned even that compassion is his nature. It's not a feeling that arises from him in response to anything that we endure. It's a part of his nature and character that never wanes, which is way different than going, oh, I have difficulty, and then he responds with some compassion because something about my circumstances raised it up out of him. You see how different it is to say, no, no, his compassion never wanes. It's here all the time in perfection because it's his nature to be compassionate. And he marries that with every other one of his attributes. We can't understand an existence like that because I often ebb and flow in, different, in the expression of different attributes of my being, right? Yes. I can be compassionate sometimes, usually responsive to something. I can be angry. I can be righteously angry. I can be joyful. I can be all these things. But often, I may be one at the expense of another because I don't know how to bring them all together. God is not like that. He never ebbs and flows in the character traits that he possesses in his attributes. He is always all of them all the time perfectly. Just imagine that. And let's just sit here and ponder, and then we can be done. It's, I mean, it's radical to think that way. But, so he, we learned that he's, he's full of compassion. Sorry, I got off on a rabbit trail there. Now what he's doing is he's, he's chasing after that, following it with helping us understand that our suffering and difficulties, he's not just compassionate towards them. He also has a purpose for them. And it's one thing to believe that he cares and he's like with you, but it's another thing also to add on to that, and they're purposeful. There is no difficulty that you will endure in the pursuit of faithfulness to God that is without purpose. Do you believe that? There is no difficulty that you will endure that is without its purpose in the plans of God. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. So let me just give you two examples. 2 Corinthians chapter four. In fact, let me, let me read it because it's just, let me not just kind of, Summarize it. Let me give you the, the full freight, as it were. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, he's not saying, Corinthians, what you're enduring is light. The afflictions they endured were significant, He's not saying, well, that, that's so teeny. He's saying in comparison to the glory and the weightiness of character and the eternal thing that it's doing in you, you will look back one day and you'll go, that was light and it was momentary compared to what it has produced. Do you see the purpose, yes? So there's purposefulness in it. And then he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So there's a purpose there's a purpose in trial, there's a purpose in difficulty, there's a purpose in suffering, and that's part of what he's pointing us to here. I established the kingdom, 
My glory and my suffering are not counter to one another. They are co-joined together beautifully. They work together. Now, the other place I'll point you to Colossians chapter one, verse 24, where Paul says something absolutely radical that's very hard to comprehend. He says, he says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Have you read that verse? Man, what on earth are you talking about? There's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is pretty adamant. Those afflictions are, uh, his sufferings are, are completely sufficient to make payment for the penalty of the sin of all humankind. That sounds pretty sufficient. That doesn't sound like anything's lacking. Fair enough? So the one thing that he can mean there is that what is not possible is for the Colossians in that moment to see the visible demonstration of the sufferings of Christ. They weren't there when he hung on the cross. But what Paul can do is through his own suffering, his own trials, his own difficulties, he can be a visible representation of those sufferings to people who need to see what suffering and faithfulness in suffering looks like. And in doing so, he participates in the sufferings of Christ, knows Christ more closely, and also makes Christ known more fully to others. That's what he means by I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, or at least that's my best understanding of what he means in a, in a sort of a full-throated kind of understanding of Paul's argument. So those two things present, friends, the first thing when we answer who is Jesus, he's the one around whom all God's plans center, but they center around his death, and he wants to make sure we see that here in the midst of the transfiguration. Do you see that, yeah? Do you see that in the story? All right. Listen, this purposefulness of sufferings, this eternal weight of glory that's produced, forgive me if this feels a little bit silly, but sometimes you know, pictures help me. You experienced it, this reality in an olfactory way as you came in today. Did you smell the poop? That smell, man, Whew. That's a central, that's a distinctly central Pennsylvania smell right there. When we walk in on those days, my family and I, we call them the poop days. We're like, oh, it's a West Shore poop day because we get out of the car and we go, woof, yeah. And that's what it is, that's why it smells like that. But what is that poop producing? A harvest. The harvest isn't gonna be there without the poop. So again, I know, forgive me, it's less than helpful. <laughs> Little too lighthearted, but I, you know, listen, every time I smell it, I think, all right, that's how the harvest gets made. That's how the harvest gets made in you too. That's how it gets made in me. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says it's producing in us an eternal weight of glory. All right, let's move to our second, our second point. Um, just for fun, I wasn't gonna repeat that illustration after the first service. Someone came up and said that was really helpful, so you can blame him <laughs> that you got that again. I was like, maybe that wasn't, uh. All right. Second point that we see in answer, who is Jesus? Jesus, now this is probably the center of the whole thing, okay? Jesus is the, is the glorified divine son. Emphasize divine, okay? Emphasis on divine there. Look at verse three, just one verse here. It's what I want you to see. He says, well, into verse two, I guess. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So there's the center of the miracle here. There's the center of what God is doing, you know, 
so that we would see this truth about Jesus. And I want you to note two things. I already referenced that that word transfigured means transformed, same word from Romans 12, same road, uh, word from 2 Corinthians chapter three. But the reason that's so important is because first, it's not just his clothes that are changing, it's Jesus himself who is changing. Do you see that? He himself is transformed. It's not just a, a trick of some laundry, right? It's not just, oh, he made his clothes really shiny, right? No, Jesus himself is now not losing his humanity, but unveiling his divinity, unveiling his, his nature. And, and I wanna be very careful, I almost said it. We don't say his true nature because his human nature is also his true nature. He is forever human and always will be, but he is also forever divine and always will be. And so we say the fullness of his nature. His human nature is his true nature, yes? Yes. His divine nature is his true nature, yes? Yes, both are true. And so he's pulling back the veil, God is, and he transforms, transfigures Jesus. And then it goes on to say, and his clothes became white. And the, if you have a note, if you have, in the, if you have an ESV Bible, and maybe some other versions will have this too, there's a footnote there that says, it says like whiter than anyone could bleach them. The word there is the word for a launderer. Whiter than any professional launderer could make them is the idea. What he's saying is this isn't a human work. No human being sort of showed up on the mountain and did something to his garments. I mean, no, this is happening because God is making it happen. That's what he wants you to see there. That's why Mark writes it that way. God is at work, not a human thing. It's a God thing, right? That's what he's saying. Now listen to Psalm 104 because here's like, wow, God does this. But now, I mean, connect this to how we see God the Father throughout scripture, just one place, Psalm 104, verse one and two. Listen to this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. How does he show that greatness? You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with what? Light, as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. In other words, what's happening in this transfiguration moment is that God is saying, I clothe myself in light, and Jesus is clothed in light. Who he is is who I am. He is the divine one. So a couple of applications there for us, okay? Number one, if you are, if you're not, if you don't believe in Jesus, one of the things he's just done is he's just taken off the table for you the option of treating Jesus like a really good teacher or like a really compassionate religious leader from the past or like a really wise sage or a prophet maybe, whatever terms you might apply to him, all the things I just said about him are true, but he is more. And what God has done is he's taken off the table for you. And I think mercifully so, because he doesn't want you to be confused. He's not trying to, he's not, I think Renee said, um, I don't know if she said it in this service uh, or in the second service, he's not trying to play a game of hide and seek with us, right? He's not going, let me, I, I, you gotta figure out who I am, come and find me. He's like, no, let me just show you. He just unveils, this is who Jesus is. So he's taking that off the table for you. You need, to, you need to deal with that, right? You need to think, okay, I either have to come to him as the divine son or I have to, have to leave him. But you're not, you're not leaving one who just claimed to be a really good, compassionate leader or teacher. You are choosing to leave one who claimed to be very God of very God and whom the Father revealed as such in moments like these. And so I just, I know that's sobering, but I need to be straightforward with you. Okay? The second thing is follower of Jesus 
be reminded, if you believe in him, the reason you believe with him is because God did for you what he did in this moment at some point in your life. He pulled back the veil and showed you that Jesus was more than what he first appeared to be. Right, because you, maybe you were a kid, maybe you were in your 20s, maybe you were in your 30s, maybe you were in your 70s, and you started, you, you started to seriously consider, well, who is Jesus and what are his claims? And at some point, due to, to no credit of your own, okay, no wisdom of your own and no wisdom of mine when I came to know Jesus, at some point, God said, I'm just gonna pull this back for you. And what you saw was that he is, he is God. And you surrendered, you yielded. And I want you to remember that because it's, it's why we are so astonished by him and so stunned and so humbled and hopefully so loving towards others who do not yet see this reality because we were shown that reality and it blew us away and hopefully we shut our mouths and said, I yield. You're in charge, not me. Remember that you've come to the divine one. Now, another application for you, friends, and you need to see how radical this is because essentially when we say he's divine, what we're saying is, and what God is showing us here is that he delights and counts it right for you and I to look at the person, Jesus, the man, Jesus, and attribute to him all the glory, all the praise, all the worthiness, all the attributes, all the eternity, all the gloriousness, all the splendor that we would attribute to the Father, it is right and good and the Father delights for us to attribute those to Jesus. Of whom else can you say that? If you even began to speak about another human being in any kind of terms that would begin to approach treating them as if they were somehow worthy of the similar kind of, of praise or accolades of God the Father, it would be completely inappropriate, yes? Oh, it'd be gross. And yet the Father is saying, please, please, attribute to Jesus everything you attribute to me. All the glory, all the worth, all the majesty, it, it all belongs to him just as it all belongs to me. He is very God, a very God. I'm revealing that to you now by pulling back the veil. You see it? Man, how good is the Father to give us this? And think, he didn't have to give us this. This could have been one of those moments. He's like, you know what? We can just move to the cross. I don't know that we need all of this. He just, he hides this little nugget of the transfiguration here in the story of the life of Jesus for us because he goes, I just, just go back to it. Just remember his glory and his splendor before the resurrection, prior to the resurrection, when we see him raised and glorified and exalted and walking through walls and all kinds of craziness, right? He gives it to us here. Do you remember moments in your life when God has pulled back the veil for you and you've seen Jesus more clearly? Where he zoomed out for you? I had one not too long ago. I was visiting one of our ministry partners in Jordan and as part of that trip, we, we didn't go into Israel, but we went to the border between Jordan and Israel, and it was the border right where the Sea of Galilee was. And I just remember, so we're at the kind of the southern tip, but I'm looking down from a hillside a couple miles away, and just looking and saying, this is a physical space, it's a, it's a real place on the real earth, and I'm touching the dirt, and, and right in front of me is the place where my Lord said, be still, and that water in front of me was still. It was silenced and 
peace was brought to it. He controlled the waves and the wind in this place. And right up here over here is the place where he drove the legion of demons out of that demoniac in Mark chapter five. And I just remember being astonished in a fresh and a new way, saying, oh my goodness gracious, when I see something about being in that physical space revealed again afresh and anew that this human, Jesus, is divine. And it, and it just, you know, it just shatters you when you see that. It's a gift from the Father. All right, so let's move then to the third point. So who is Jesus? The Father's answering that question for us, and he's saying he's, he is the one that establishes my purposes in the world, my kingdom. He does it through his death, does it through suffering. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not just the one who establishes my purposes through his death. He is also the divine son. He is the glorified divine son. Then the third thing we see is that Jesus is the one who has changed the world forever. He's changed the world forever. So follow me now in the text, and let's look at verse four and verse seven, okay? And then we're gonna look at Peter's response and be really thankful for how patient Jesus is. Verse four and verse seven says this. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's that Elijah-Moses thing. I wanna tell you what that's about. And then go down to verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay, now, those two verses are alluding back to a lot of Old Testament stories. And for the sake of time, I'm just gonna give you a summary of those, okay? So the Elijah and Moses piece, we already saw that Malachi talked about Elijah coming before the Messiah was gonna come. Do we remember that, yes? Okay. There's also this prophecy in, Deuter uh, in Deuteronomy, yeah, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, let me go back to my notes. Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 18. I blanked there for a second. I was like, am I saying the right verse? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where it says that, God is gonna raise up a prophet like Moses from among his people when he's talking about the Messiah. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. He says, when I send him, he'll be a prophet, just like Moses was a prophet. But he says, and my people will listen to him. Now Moses might, if he were standing there, say, yeah, they didn't listen to me all that much, right? He's saying, but, but when the Messiah comes, they're gonna, they're gonna listen to him. Now, then the next thing that happens is this cloud surrounds Elijah and Moses and Jesus and the disciples are caught up in this cloud. Well, we've seen that before in the Old Testament, haven't we? If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, God often on Mount Sinai, he comes down in a cloud and surrounds the people to whom he's engaging. So that picture plus the Moses plus the Elijah plus then he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. There's one other place he said that. Anybody remember where he said, God said that? At the baptism of Jesus. But he adds one phrase here, listen to him. And when he says listen, he doesn't mean just like literally listen to his words. He means follow what he says. When you, when you listen, when you truly listen to someone, I mean, if you have kids and you, then you say, did you, did you listen to me? What you mean is, did you do what I said? You don't mean did you literally in your ears hear the words that I said? Yeah, yeah, I listened. No, no, do what I'm saying. That's what he's saying here. And what did he say about Moses in Deuteronomy 18? The Messiah will be one, he'll be raised up like, Mo like Moses, a prophet, but the people will listen to him. So bring all those things together, and what essentially God is showing us here at the moment of transfiguration is he's saying, I am establishing a life-changing moment, I am bringing the Messiah. All those things that referred to the Messiah in the Old Testament, Elijah, Moses, the nature of their ministries, the prophecies in Malachi, the prophecy in Deuteronomy, the, the cloud on the mountain, all of that 
is here in this moment of transfiguration to point us to the fact that God is ushering in what we call the messianic age, the age of the Messiah, the time where it would be revealed how God was going to do the, the pinnacle of his work, that Jesus himself would be the center of all God's redeeming work. And friends, here's the beauty of this. He's saying, I have now established this new age. There was an old age, here's the new one. And in that new age now, you no longer have to wonder who is the Messiah going to be? We know the answer. How is he going to redeem and reconcile people to God? We know the answer. The answer is Jesus. The answer is through his cross. The answer is through his resurrection. And you and I now live in that messianic age. It's the age in which we live, where those questions are answered and where the power of God has come to bear. I said we're not overly triumphalistic. We're also not overly pessimistic, where we act as if the power of God has not come through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So here's the application of this. If all of that is just to say, he has ushered in a new age. God is ushering in a new age through Jesus. What that means is we now living in that age live at a time where people can be reconciled to God forever and receive eternal life. We live at a time where you can have a depth of hope and a depth of peace and a depth of joy that you can't possibly fathom. And the reason I wanna remind you of that is because we spend a lot of time as Christians talking about how awful the world is. And there are real problems in the world and there are real uh, massive issues that we would love to see changed and overturned and transformed. But we cannot forget that we live in the age of the Messiah. We live at a time when the kingdom has come among us in the person of Jesus and there is real victory to walk in because of it, yes? We have every reason for hope. We have every reason for optimism. We have every reason for trust. We have every reason for joy. Yes, there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world, but none of it should ding our sense of trust in God and the work he's doing. He is establishing his kingdom. Now, I, I'm always careful when it comes to that. Um, are y'all familiar with the DISC profile? I was just talking with some friends in our, in our young married class about this right before the service. Uh, if you know the DISC pers personality profile, uh, I just took one again recently, and I'm a, I'm a real high I, which means I'm really optimistic. So one of the things I learned about myself is I'm, I'm, so, I'm a 10 out of 10 on that scale, which means that if you're a five, I think you're the most negative Nelly. I don't even know what to do with you if you're a one. And it's a good thing to know that I'm that naively optimistic, right? But maybe you can benefit from my naive optimism because I tend to believe that nothing is that big a deal that God can't overcome it. So, you know, my natural personality maybe, I don't know, but also we live in the age of the Messiah. We live in the age of the King who's come and in the age of his resurrection, not just his death. Man, what a good time to live, yeah? What a sweet time to live. Thank you, God, for putting us here in a time where your kingdom has come into the world. Now, the last thing I talk, we wanna talk about Peter here for a second. God bless him. In the South, and you say, bless your heart. Bless his heart. Just means dumber than a box of rocks. But, but, but bless you. Blessings on your heart, right? If you're in the South and somebody says that to you, it is an insult. You should know that and act appropriately in response. So, Peter, he is just like you and I, isn't he? 
because what does he do? He's in this moment and God is doing something. And friends, if God begins to pull back the veil on Jesus for you, it's gonna be really, I mean, it's shocking and it's upending and disturbing and you're gonna probably just, it's gonna take time for you to process that. Like if you don't believe in him and he begins to, it's gonna undo you. And God is patient with you as you grapple with that. And we, his people, will be patient with you too. My promise to you. We're so glad. Just come along. Just. And Peter's response is, I mean, so flawed in so many ways. He's just, a, he's just a dude. He's just a guy, practical guy. And he's just like, what? He's seeing this in front of him. And he just, he goes, rabbi, which first of all, rabbi just means human teacher. That's the wrong thing to call him in this moment. What might be better? Lord, right? Rabbi, let's, and he just, and here's why I think this is so comical, because it, the text follows what he says by saying he didn't know what to say. And so he says, uh, we should make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I don't know if he thinks they're gonna stay up there. I, I just think he's trying to grasp at straws and go, I gotta do something, because he's a, he's a guy that's just gotta do something. As Jesus begins to upend your world, friends, can I just tell you the better response is to be real quiet. Just be quiet, ask questions. What do you want me to know? What do you want me to see? Maybe don't offer God stuff. He doesn't need you to offer him anything. He's giving you something. He's coming to you. Let him come to you. He's not really that interested in you saying, let me build you some tents. Let me do this stuff for you. He's saying, no, no. I'm going to do for you. So be quiet. Ecclesiastes chapter five says it's better to draw near to the throne of God in silence than with a bunch of foolish jabber. That's what's happening. And then it says he didn't know what to say, but he'd already said some stuff because he was terrified. Friends, just know this. Afterwards, did Jesus rebuke Peter? He's rebuked him before. Does he rebuke him here? No. Do we get any sense that he's like, what were you talking about? I mean, why? Come on, Peter. No. He's just patient. They walk down the mountain. He points out that there's gonna be suffering. He he goes into the whole conversation we already looked at, but friends, he's not angry at Peter. Praise God as we who believe are grappling with the implications of the fact that Jesus is divine, and that he is very God of very God, and what are the implications of that for our life, and how do we follow, and how do we obey, and what do we do, how do we respond? He's patient with us as we figure that out. Praise God for that, yeah? And if you're grappling with whether to believe in this one who's being transfigured right in front of you today, he's patient with you too. So praise God. Let's pray, and let's respond in praise, shall we? Let's sing together, all right? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this moment in the life of Jesus where you chose to do something miraculous and remarkable and then you had your disciples tell us about it so that we could see it and come face to face with it. Thank you. It's really, it's a gift. We love your word. We love who it reveals you to be and we wanna embrace and receive all that you are. Now, we want to respond to you with praise, with song. That's our normal habit, Lord, and we do it because you're worthy of praise, and something about song helps us get at that a lot better than just saying some words. So we want to sing to you now. We pray that our our worship be pleasing to you because it comes from the depth of our heart, the depth of our mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and close our time in prayer, uh, in singing.